Hear what it's like putting San Francisco's gourmet food on the table from the people who do the work. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, KPFB in Berkeley, and KFCF in Fresno. It's 3.30. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up. In darkness From the ones Who Walk in light Light them up Boys There's your picture Drop the shadows Out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and I think the rain is stopping at least for a while. Oh, rain, rain, go away. Today I want to talk about, oh, 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 Susan Sontag, and about what it means to be a public intellectual, and how Tony Kushner is now kind of a public intellectual, and, uh... Hmm, and I want to tell you all about Julia Vinograd's new book of poems and all about Louisa May Alcott's New Age Father. The article is Orpheus at the Plow in the 10 January New Yorker. Oh, it's just too much. I need to, uh, what is that? Uh, express myself, yes. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, dear. First the jokes. First the jokes. Let's, let's be cheerful. Let us try. Uh, here's one. Tony Kushner, the playwright, you know Tony, he's this wonderful guy. Um, he wrote Angels in America and a bunch of other plays, and he seems to be kind of the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. Anyway, he's mixing his activism with his art. For a moveon.org fundraiser, he went back to a play in progress. Now, this play in progress is called... Only we who guard the mystery shall be unhappy. Now, the play depicts Laura Bush attending an after-school reading program for dead Iraqi children. For this event, he added a second scene in which the First Lady, who is an admirer of Dostoevsky's writing, my footnote here, she adores the brothers Karamazov, you know, the book about the war between fathers and sons. Anyway, the first lady in the play comes on stage to debate the play's literary merits with the playwright himself. Since the first scene was published in The Nation, that's The Nation magazine, and it's the first play that The Nation has printed in its 139-year history, heavy duty, uh, uh, he gives a list of the actresses, yes, who have all played the role of Laura Bush. Yes. Uh, Patricia Clarkson, Marsha Gay Harden, Vanessa Redgrave. Yes, they've all played the role of Laura Bush in this play. Once again, the title is Only We Who Guard the Mystery Shall Be Unhappy. <laughs> uh, Laura Bush was invited to read the part herself. 
parenthesis. Her office did not respond. Okay. Uh, Tony Kushner likes to collect amusing tidbits about political figures. Yes, <laughs> don't we all? Yes, indeed. Uh, he gives a list here in the article. This is the January 3rd article. Uh, January 3rd, 2005, New Yorker, the one on Tony Kushner. Uh, oh, there's so many. Uh, let me just give you the one about President Bush. President Bush refers to the First Lady as, quote, my lump in the bed, unquote. So in a new scene of Only We Who Guard, Kushner brings this up. His character says to Laura Bush, so I guess my point is that we're all like you, that we're all being effed by your husband, unquote. Uh, they use the actual word, yes. The first lady takes umbrage and gets up to leave. As a parting shot, she scolds Kirshner, the playwright, yes. Using the theater, the stage, art, for, for tawdry propagandizing. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, she says. I always am, Kushner replies, yes. <laughs> God bless the poets and the prophets, where would we be? Where would we be without them? Uh, before I read you a poem by Julia Vinograd, let me read you something old. Yes, something old and then Julia something new. I was looking through the poems last night and I came across something by Arthur O'Shaughnessy that I'd forgotten. It is so... So old, he was 37 when he died, poor man. He lived from 1844 to 1881. This is the only bit of poetry that he is remembered for, Arthur O'Shaughnessy. And it's called Ode. We are the music makers. We are the dreamers of dreams wandering by lone sea breakers. And sitting by desolate streams, world losers and world forsakers, on whom the pale moon gleams. Yet we are the movers and shakers of the world forever, it seems. With wonderful deathless ditties, we build up the world's great cities, and out of a fabulous story we fashion an empire's glory, one man with a dream at pleasure shall go forth and conquer a crown, and three, with a new song's measure, can trample an empire down. We, in the ages lying in the buried past of the earth, built Nineveh with our sighing, and Babel itself with our mirth, and o'er through them with prophesying to the old of the new world's worth. For each age is a dream that is dying, or one that is coming to birth. The question, of course, is which are we? I remember 50 years ago as a uh, an English major in school, yes. Uh, that was one of the questions on a test. They asked whether our age was a dream that is dying or an age in which we're coming to birth. Let me look 
yes, at Julia's book. Now it's called Skull and Crosswords. And uh, <laughs> uh, Julia Vinograd is our local street poet on Telegraph Avenue. She's been around so long. I think I first spoke with her in the early 70s. Long, long ago, I remember. She came into a cafe. I'm trying to remember the details of that scene. I'm just going to read you one poem because I haven't had a chance to study the book. It was in my box when I got to the station today. This poem titled Death. Oil is a black rose in the hanging gardens of Babylon. Death wants it for her hair. Death watches young men marching, training for her embrace. Her bones blush. She can hardly wait. Death whistles and a vulture perches on her bare shoulder. She strokes its feathers, cooing. Death uses a landmine for a mirror, smiling mine. All mine. She walks through cities after bombs fall. Roads, bridges, and buildings broken, while bodies lie framed in their blood like lace around valentines for her, and fire everywhere dancing in her graveyard eyes. Machine guns like long-stemmed red roses, full of promise. War. Death sips at the word like champagne. At the gates of Babylon, she turns over a dead soldier with one foot and watches a mouse jump out of his mouth. The mouse squeals. Death laughs, puts on a wedding veil of blood and does not stop again. That's Julia Vinograd's poem, Death. It's in her new collection, Skull and Crosswords. I recommend this book. You can usually find Julia on the street down on Telegraph Avenue at the Café Med. Yes, indeed. Uh, maybe more of this next week. Absolutely amazing poems in this new collection. And I don't want to forget to tell you this uh, week about Holly Near, a singer, songwriter, activist extraordinaire, another one of the poets who prophesy, who change the world. Even if we never win, we change the world, we alter the color of reality. She'll be at the Berkeley Fellowship of Unitarian Universalists. That's 1924 Cedar Street at Bonita in Berkeley. You can just call them. They, uh, Let's see, they're sponsored by the uh, Social Justice Committee. Uh, you can phone if you want uh, more information. It's 415-927-1645. But uh, you can just call the uh, Berkeley Fellowship of Unitarians. They're, over, uh, they're here in Berkeley. Her pianist, Adrian Torf, will be there. Adrian Torf is a long-time collaborator with June Jordan. Anyway, they're going to discuss, so what do we do now? Tolstoy used to, to say, yes, what then do we do? What then do we do?
Uh, we do what we can. This is part of a series called So How'd You Become an Activist? And that's Holly Near, and it's Thursday night. That's day after tomorrow, January 13th, 7 o'clock. Thursday, January 13th, 7 o'clock at the Berkeley Fellowship of Unitarian Universalists. And oh, now I need to talk about um, Susan Sontag. I <laughs> I always felt uh, an affection for Susan Sontag. I, I never met her, but I remember once going to a reading and she was talking about having met Thomas Mann and that she had resisted going to meet Thomas Mann. Uh, she said, well, after all, why would you do that? Uh, she said, we have his books. And basically that's what I felt about Susan. After 9-11, she wrote a short piece in the New Yorker magazine and got into a lot of trouble. Uh, a number of pundits accused her of treason. All she said was sensible stuff. She said things like... Uh, let us mourn together, but let us not be stupid together. That was quite a brouhaha. Uh, it's difficult to define a public intellectual in today's climate. Uh, what it means, of course, is someone who gives a damn. Uh, it's so strange. After she died, that was, let's see, the day after the tsunami hit, I muttered, well, you know, have we got any intellectuals left? And I came up with Tony Kushner and three or four more. They're the sort of people, they're kind of renaissance spirits. They follow their thoughts, you know, rather than following the money. Uh, they're thinkers, students of life, um, culture vultures. They believe in what Matthew Arnold called sweetness and light. <laughs> yes, we all know what happened to that 19th century word. Matthew Arnold insisted that the function of criticism was uh, to search out the best that has been thought and said in one's time, uh, something like what Kushner is saying in this article, yes. He's, he added that we should try to make these thoughts and ideas prevail. Well, now, uh, Susan Sontag herself often refers to early Americans, uh, the transcendentalists, who tried to improve things, you know, who tried to influence human societies, what is now called goody-good folks. <laughs> I remember I got some of this liberal education in the 1950s. My kids call it the myth of progress. <laughs> Sontag was born the same year I was, and we both grew up in Tucson, Arizona. I think the desert air was kind of, kind of special then. Anyway... She was interviewed this week, um, well, no, no, the radio interviews I heard were archival material, some from 98, some from 2001. Uh, I don't think, uh, well, she was asked, first of all, the question that interested me most. She was asked, what was the most significant cultural shift in her lifetime? Something to that effect. And... Her answer was, quote, the discrediting of idealism. I wrote this in my little notebook, and I thought about it and thought about it, and I thought, does the discrediting of idealism mean, what, lost innocence? Does it mean nothing shocks us anymore? And then I thought, no, it means just what she said. It means that idealism is no longer fashionable. Okay, I think we're reinventing it, morphing it. Uh, uh, let us hope so. 
I look around and I, I notice some cheerful signs. Yes, Prince Harry of England has become a little greenpeacer. I watched him with his brother stuffing Red Cross boxes for the tsunami victims. It's a good sign when privileged people see beyond themselves. It's uh, not the usual behavior, yes, when you consider the decadent rich in our own nation or the Russians, the oligarchs. The Red Star has certainly burnt out. Socialism, uh, we never got to socialism, folks. Um, and American democracy, well... Is it George Bernard Shaw? He said yes. The only nation who ever, that ever passed from, uh, barbarism to decadence without going through civilization. <laughs> I think as our world goes, greed trumps grace. Hmm. Oscar Wilde said to think you can be rich and not act rich is to think you can be blind and not act blind. Our Economic status always dictates our ideology. You know it's true. It's why the uh, good folks, the sensible religious types, Christians, Buddhists, you know, the folks that uh, care about these things, they take a vow of poverty because you need to remember how it feels to have absolutely nothing. I remember watching the uh, folks on television. Uh, it was like surrealism. The people who were being hit by the tsunami, you know, having their children swept out of their arms, drowned their whole family, dead and gone, and then switch the channel and you'll find Americans screaming that their Christmas has been ruined because their luggage is lost. Uh, the uh, traffic, the air traffic was tied up over the holidays. Susan Sontag understood all this. She know, knew it was no good hanging out with the haves, you know. She went over to Bosnia, staged Samuel Beckett's play Waiting for Godot right there in Sarajevo during the Serb assault. She knew what writing was for, what it was intended to do. Uh, writing is part of a radical life. You get to the roots of things. Radical means the root. You don't write because you want to say something or because you want to be famous and make money. You write because you have something to say. And in order to have something to say... You must have lived a bit, and you must be a student of human nature. You must weave together art and ideology, a la Bertolt Brecht. Tony Kushner always says that he wanted to be Bertolt Brecht. Once again, I recommend to you a very good article in the New Yorker of January 3, the one about Tony Kushner. Let's see what the title of this one is, in case anybody wants to know. Tony Kushner, um, he is a purveyor of brave art. He defines that as the best sense we can make of our times. Uh, the article is a profile, and it's called After Angels, Tony Kushner's Promethean Itch. <laughs> Actually, Angels in America tried to encapsulate in its visionary sweep the sense of confusion and longing that defined late 20th century American life. Oh, I think it was a lot more than that. Uh, anyways, he and the director, Mike Nichols, who put together the uh, film version that most of us have seen on television, uh, they are, what would you call it, uh, are aristocrats in the theater. Uh, <laughs> you remember, if you saw the... Uh, uh, film version of Angels in America, 
you saw this angel. It's at the Bethesda Fountain in New York. He talks about the biblical tale of Bethesda, which is an angel who appears on the surface of a pool and gives the water healing powers. Uh, actually, it was a statue that commemorated the naval dead of the Civil War. But it's interesting. It's the first commissioned sculpture by a woman in New York. Her name was Emma Stebbings. She was a lesbian. He went on. Uh, Kushner went on. The other thing I love about the statue is that it got terrible reviews when it was unveiled. <laughs> anyway, Susan Sontag is someone who was uh, always grappling with art and ideology. Uh, she thinks they're inseparable. Inseparable. I I think of Virginia Woolf, and the women are interesting uh, contrasts because Virginia Woolf. Um, well, she tried to do it with novels, and Susan Sontag tried to do it with essays. And I think each wanted to do the other thing. Um, Virginia Woolf, uh, well, you know, she did not write for the marketplace, but she certainly uh, wrote for the sake of art. She wanted to advance consciousness to probe the conscience of mankind. I think that Virginia Woolf should have or could have written more critical essays, been a culture critic. Uh, she could have done it on a grand scale. When she did it even a little, it's fascinating. In her era, her historical niche, uh, there seemed to be a requirement that a woman write novels, that she find her truth within fiction. When she did write essays, uh, all hell broke loose. Uh, even Vita Sackville West disapproved of the essay Three Guineas. That was the one um, in which her feminism gave such uh, offense. Virginia Woolf dared to compare life in the homes of the British patriarchal families uh, to fascism in Germany. And nobody would stand for that, you know, uh, of course, we all know that fascism begins in the home. In any case, political analysis was not for a woman. In her day, that was just verboten. Virginia Woolf killed herself in 1941. She was 58. Let's see, Susan Sontag and I were eight years old that year. I remember that year. I remember my eighth birthday. Two days before Pearl Harbor was bombed by the Japanese. It was the biggest party I ever had in my life. Cured me forever of parties. My father left and joined the Navy and went off on a hospital ship to the South Pacific. And that was the end of uh, our family life. Uh, I digress, I digress. Susan Stone, unlike Virginia Woolf, felt that she was on surer ground in her essays, in her critical writing. That's because she's an American. She's got this Puritan heritage, you see. Uh, she wanted to be of use. She wanted to write for a cause. Virginia Woolf insisted that writing overtly for a cause was a mistake. See, uh, she she put it this way. She said, never be shrill. Uh, never look like you care. Perhaps that's what she meant. Anyway, she went to aesthetic distance. That's that old patriarchal plot. Uh, it's a ploy, men telling women that they must be above ideology. They must be objective. Uh, I've always found objective to mean male subjectivity, but Sontag wrote, as Emerson did, she was reaching for a moral high ground. Let your reach exceed your grasp. 
She believed in what I call the ethical imperative. Uh, she knew that art, like any other practice, even a religion is a practice, shapes the mind, the heart, the soul. For many of us, art does the work that was once assigned to religion. It was supposed to tenderize us, religion, you know. Not working as well as we had hoped, although I'm sure there are uh, many Christians who find religion humanizing, civilizing. Anyway, all this begins in the cradle. It all begins with the songs, the music, the colors, the pictures. It is these things that create our culture. Aesthetics is the mother of ethics. If Timothy McVeigh had been raised, not in a military all-male family group, but say in a Quaker household, or in a 19th century commune, or in a Berkeley family with poets and dancers and singers and drummers, well, all that seems so very, very obvious, and yet we go on leaving the young and vulnerable males and females in the hands of sadists and simpletons. I was reading this week this wonderful article called Orpheus at the Plow, all about an educator, a man who understood that the way the twig is bent, thus groweth the tree, as we used to say. Uh, <laughs> it's all about the father of Louisa May Alcott. Now, Louisa May Alcott, you will remember, wrote a book called Little Women now considered perhaps sentimental, not by me, Geraldine Brooks in the January 10th New Yorker writes this story in Life and Letters. She calls it Orpheus at the Plow. And it's funny because I had been taught by certain 70s feminists that Louisa May Alcott's father was a real drag and that he did live on her earnings. So, of course, we disapproved of this improvident loser uh, now, actually, it seems it was more complicated than that. I'm going to, I'm in the process of writing an essay about the fathers of uh, some of our great writers. I think of Patrick Bronte, the father of the Bronte sisters and father of Emily Dickinson. They all have fascinating influence, but always, always, uh, the father is a powerful influence uh, this guy, <laughs> his name was Bronson Alcott. Uh, this guy did just about everything that uh, a modern hippie father would do. He took his family off to live in a community. He called it Fruitlands. Oh, dear. Uh, and he was an absolutist. Uh, he was a hard worker. Actually, they, they suffered. Yes, they suffered rather... Grim, yes, but everyone, uh, all the other transcendentalists, Henry David Thoreau and Emerson, seem to have taken his ideas and used them. He seems to have been the soul of the transcendental movement, but both Emerson and Thoreau found him to be a bad writer. Uh, his style was no good. They said his, his, um, his talent was in speaking. He loved the Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Let's see, he's born in 1799 on a farm. He's a radic radical educator. He had very little formal schooling. Uh, 
He went to a one-room schoolhouse, which was dirty, freezing in winter, stifling in summer, and so poorly equipped that pupils were obliged to make their own ink. He was also beaten, yes. Now, he seems to have decided that all this was wrong, and in his schools, the schools that he founded, and of course they floundered and failed, but uh, there was no corporal punishment, and uh, there was all the good stuff, all the arts and physical education. He was uh, a good-looking guy. He was tall and blonde and charming, and oh, gee whiz, I wish I could tell you all about this interesting man uh, who was so creative in an so far ahead of his time that, of course, he was in those terms, in the terms of the 19th century, a kind of a loser. If you're interested in these dynamics, in the pathology of thinking and writing, check out the January 10th issue of The New Yorker for an article called Orpheus at the Plow, all about the father of Louisa May Alcott. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, this has been Jennifer Stone. Go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Happy ending. You want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. You got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. you got the Western Workers Labor Heritage Festival is coming January 14 to 16. It's a great weekend of labor arts of every kind, all participatory, all fun, honoring.